Good morning, church. I'm so glad to see all of you. You're looking great. A lot of kids today. I'm super pumped about that. Welcome to eKids, parents. Welcome to. <laughs> For now, as uh, you may be a guest, so you're not aware, but we're not doing eKids uh, right now until, you know, some things get clarified and pass and whatnot. But I have just been loving family church. Have y'all? It's been great. And so anyone with small kids, I just want to give you permission right now for your kids to make a little bit of noise. That's what happens, right? This Thanksgiving and this Christmas, this Thanksgiving and this Christmas, when the kids act up, you don't kick them out of the house, right? So feel free sometimes, depends on the kid. So if that sometimes occurs during my sermon and it becomes disruptive to too many people, feel free to step out in the hall. You're welcome to do that. I'm, I'm just really excited today to continue the series uh, that we're currently in, binge reading the Bible. And I've spent the last three weeks giving you a highlight over the different books in the Bible so that you and I can study to show ourselves approved, so that you and I can rightly divide the Word of God. This is really hot. You can bring me down just a little bit. Um, but I, my goal is so that we don't just open the Bible and close our eyes and throw our finger to a scripture and, and hope that it speaks to us. But you and I understand that there is a method to the madness of scripture. And so we can methodically go book by book to understand what the Lord is trying to say to us. Um, there were three sons who left home and went out on their own, and they prospered. And they were getting back together for the holidays, and they discussed the gifts that they were able to give to their elderly mother. The first son said, I built a big house for our mother. The second said, I sent her a Mercedes with a driver. The third, somebody's like, I want that son. The third son said, I've got you both beat. You remember how mom enjoyed reading the Bible? And you know, she can't see very well anymore. I sent her a remarkable parrot that recites the entire Bible. It took the elders 20 years just to teach him. He's one of a kind. Mama just has to name the chapter and verse, and the parrot will recite it. Pretty impressed they all were. Soon thereafter, Mom sent out letters of thanks to everyone. To the first son, she said, Milton, the house you built is so huge. I only live in one room, but I have to clean the whole house. Gerald, she wrote to the, the second son, I am too old to travel anymore. My eyesight isn't what it used to be. I stay most of the time at home, so I rarely use the Mercedes, and the driver is just rude. Then she wrote to her third son, Dear Jack, I want you to know that you have a good sense to know what your mother likes. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> May we never misappropriate the word of God. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, if you want to write that down. It was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I made the claim to you rightly that the majority of the Pentateuch was talking about one thing, God is first. I took you to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, if you remember, and it says the Lord God is 
one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. The Lord is one. That was the theme for the first five books of the Bible. Still worth reading, by the way, but that's it in a nutshell. The next group of books that I talked to you about was the history books. That's Joshua through Esther. In the history books, the nutshell version is uh, that they contain a cycle of Israel's rebellion, God's judgment, Israel's repentance, and God's deliverance. And, and I said to us, that sounds an awful lot like us, doesn't it? God's faithfulness, our rebellion, God brings us back in and he delivers us. Then we went to the wisdom books, also known as the poetry books. And I talked uh, from Job all the way to Song of Solomon and the wisdom or the poetry books. The main theme there is the highlight of spiritual and practical insights of God's people throughout history. And what I, I told us, I hope that we learned, I think this was just last week, we learned that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the application of wisdom, in other words, wisdom in action, is trust. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, revering him for who he truly is and understanding all that he should be in our life. But the application, the outworking of wisdom is that you and I find that we trust him a whole lot more. I told someone the other night, I was talking to them after church, after Wednesday night church, or maybe it was last Sunday after church, I said, uh, he's, he's new to the, well, he grew up in church, but he's coming back around. You know what I mean? And I'm kind of talking to him. He doesn't live in town, so it's long distance uh, coaching and mentoring that I'm, I'm doing with him. And, and we were standing there chatting, and we were talking about trust, and he mentioned that it's really hard to trust. And I, I told him, I said, well, at some point, you'll understand that what God's been doing all along is he's been building a history with you. He's been building a case-by-case example, a testimony to his faithfulness and his consistency and that he can be trusted. You see, oftentimes you and I find ourselves in relationships where people do us in a way that we never thought they would. And we somehow apply that irregularity of people to our Father in heaven, but he is so, so faithful. And that's what the poetry books really got to talk to us. I mean, look at Job. He lost everything. And we talked last week about there is, there is some beauty when we as believers learn that we can suffer well. We, we all know how to, you know, get the, the fat checks and the pay raises and the bonuses and the blessings of God. And I, I want more of those just like you do. And I don't think it's bad that we, we declare that we are a prosperous people. But let me just tell you, there is beauty in the ashes of suffering because from those ashes rises something that God can't build anywhere else. But that was last week. And this week, I want to talk to you at the next set of scripture, the books, the prophets, the prophets. In the prophets, God relays his message through inspired men in order to grab the attention of his people and call them to repentance. Now, the prophets, if you look in your Bible, the table of contents, it goes from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. That's 17 books 
Those are major and minor prophets. They're dealing with Israel somewhere between 15 BC to 5 BC, but also there are prophetic overtones, especially in Isaiah and Daniel in multiple of the prophetic books that we're talking about today that are pointing to the future. I'm not a preterist. On Wednesdays, we've talked about what preterism is. If you want to know what that is, I'll see you Wednesday at 6.30. I'm not a preterist. I'm a futurist. I believe that there are still prophecies in this book yet to be fulfilled. And the prophets talk about that quite a bit. They are filled with oracles showcasing the crazy relationship, the up and down relationship between God and his people. The prophets themselves were men raised up during times of Israel and Judah's apostasy falling away when Israel and Judah walked away from the faith These prophets were raised up to speak on behalf of God to the people. Making sense? These books are key to our understanding of how God dealt with his people based on their obedience or their disobedience. I'm really grateful that I live in the age that I live in, by the way. I know that we're not talking about New Testament yet, but there is something to be said about grace that I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I didn't live. I mean, I get it. It's cool. They get to call down fire and they get to say all this stuff. That's, that's great. I hope I get to watch movies of it in heaven. But I'm just glad to be in 2020, 2020, where grace is still alive. Amen. But we're not there yet. We'll get to that next week in the New Testament. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some foreshadowing at the end of my sermon about that. But what we need to know about the prophecy books today is that prophets functioned to call Israel back to God. So anytime you're reading the Old Testament, Daniel, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, Micah, any of them, it is a, a call to Israel to come back to God, to come back to the faithfulness of their covenant relationship with God. They confronted Israel's sin and they demanded repentance. So after the death of Moses, a little bit of history here. Moses led Israel for 40 years. Moses died, I believe, at the age of 120. Um, He led Israel for 40 years, and and, and Moses had been talking to God face-to-face, like, literally talking, as if you and I were to go out to Starbucks and sit down six feet away and talk to one another. Moses did that with God. And and Moses understood that what he had to do was set up this system so that people could continue hearing from God because he knew that he wasn't going to live forever. So we understand and know that Moses set up the prophetical order of people, the prophets, to be the voice of God to the people. We understand in Exodus 7-1 what a prophet really is. A prophet isn't about telling the future, though they can. It's not about saying who's going to win an election or what's going to happen to America or what's going to happen to Israel, though they, they, they can. Prophecy can. It can talk about the future. God can breathe on that for sure. I'm not negating that, but the foundation of prophecy isn't about telling you what you had for breakfast. It's not telling you about the sins that you committed or the things you've done wrong or, or the things that's going to happen to you in the future. Prophecy, we, we know, is being God's voice to people. It's that simple. Did you know when you go to HEB 
and there's something that moves on your heart to tell someone that God loves them, that you're stepping into the prophetic role in that moment. You're speaking to that individual on behalf of God. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm not suggesting you put the term prophetess on your door. But you are for that moment stepping into the role of prophet, prophet and prophetess. In Exodus 7.1, God tells Moses that Aaron is going to be Moses' prophet. Crazy, huh? Moses was a prophet for God, meaning Moses spoke for God. And Exodus 7.1 says, hey, Moses, Aaron's going to be your prophet. Meaning Aaron is going to speak for Moses. So I'm not trying to diminish the role of prophet. In fact, I actually think it makes the role that much more strong by understanding that when we prophesy something, we're not speaking what we want to see, what we hope to see, what, what we think we need to see. If we're not hearing from the throne of heaven, we shouldn't prophesy at all. How does this apply to relationships? Well, if we know that the, the power of our words, that life and death is in the power of the tongue, wouldn't it do our relationships well if we held on to our opinions and we released more what God is saying about our spouse, released more what God is saying about our children, released more what God is saying about our boss? Can I get an amen from all of my employees in the room? A prophet is just speaking for it. Now, they can, if God is on it, they could peer into the future. We see the Old Testament prophets doing that quite often. But a false prophet, just so that you're aware, a false prophet can be someone who is prophesying for a false god, right? They can say things on someone else's behalf that's not God, what does that look like? Culture. Culture has a lot of little prophets running around. It does. Education has a lot of little prophets running around. Business corporations have a lot of little prophets running around. Fear has a lot of little prophets running around. Are you with me, church? Are the words that we're speaking, are they reflecting what God is saying about the situation? Are we prophesying in the name of Jesus or are we prophesying in the name of fear? Our text today that I want to take you to is Hosea. It's, it's, it's a great book that I hope that you'll read um, and I want to take you to Hosea chapter 3, because in chapter 3, it describes what can really be seen behind the heart of all the prophets, right? In these 17 books, Hosea 3 talks about the heart behind the prophets as a whole and the recurring theme presented in the majority of these books that I'm talking about today. Um, in Hosea 3, Israel has played the harlot and abandoned the Lord as their only God. And they're experiencing judgment by God and being called to restoration by the prophet through a message of repentance. You're hearing these words a lot, right? They're running away. They're being called back. There's judgment. They're being called back to repentance. 
Okay, this is an overarching theme we've seen since Genesis in our discussion the last few weeks. We're going to see it again in Hosea. What's so important about Hosea, though, is the way in which God loves Israel is the same way that God told Hosea, a prophet, to marry an adulteress, like a prostitute, like a harlot. Are you with me? God told the prophet Hosea to marry an adulteress who would not be faithful. And we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then God ordered me, this is the message translation, Then God ordered me, start all over. Love your wife again, your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy I did it. I paid good money to get her back. It cost me the price of a slave. Then I told her, from now on, you're living with me. No more being a harlot. No more sleeping around. You're living with me, and I'm living with you. The people of Israel are going to live a long time stripped of security and protection without religion and comfort, godless and prayerless. But in time, they'll come back. These Israelites come back looking for their God and their David king. They'll come back chastened to reverence before God and his good gifts, ready for the end of the story of his love. Can you imagine God telling you to marry a prostitute, knowing that they're going to be unfaithful? Yet another reason I'm glad to live in 2020. And what God is really doing, you understand, he's making a living example of Hosea. He says, I want you to be the illustration of my unending, undying love for Israel. This nation that keeps leaving and coming back repentant. Leaving and coming back repentant. Hosea, I want you to go get your wife, pull her from the bed of her lover, Bring her back home and commit yet again that you will never leave her. Can you imagine? I don't think I would like living that kind of example. Do you remember in school, I don't know if you had to do this, if you ever took home ec, um, I know a few of you did, they had little babies. Do you remember uh, they had, sometimes you had this sack of flour and you had to decorate it like a little baby? in home ec and carry it around for weeks and you had to make sure that the flower didn't fall out. Some of you had an egg. Did anyone ever see schoolmates with the egg? They had a raw egg. You did, Crystal? Okay, so this is true. They had a raw egg that they had to carry around to make sure that, you know, they didn't drop it or whatever. And, and I think the point was to teach these kids how challenging it is to have a real baby, you know? I, I saw somebody... I won't call Alphany out, but I saw somebody, I think it was you, I can't remember, had an electronic baby, because now they're highfalutin schools. And there's an electronic baby that cries and whatnot. But you had to actually take care of the baby, and your grade was based on the fact if the egg came back complete, right? Lawrence, like, pretend you're watching my kid. Lawrence, here. It's boiled. Good job, Lawrence. 
Who wants the flower? <laughs> so you, you take care of the baby, and then at the end of the project, you're supposed to go to your parents and say how grateful you are that they had you and took care of you because it's so hard raising a bag of flour, and you're just so grateful. And I don't know that kids ever did say that they were grateful uh, for that, but this is the same thing that God is doing, but in real life with Hosea. In the same manner, Hosea had to marry a promiscuous adulteress in order to see just how bad it was for Israel to leave and God to continue to receive her back. In verse 1, if we could read that, Hosea 3.1 says, God is telling Hosea to love his wife the way God loves the Israelite people. And let's read that again. The second half says, love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. So Israel is, is flirting and partying with every God, lowercase g, that takes their fancy. We see that Israel has looked to other gods and adult, adopted the culture and the idols of the surrounding pagan nations. There is, in fact, a very long history between Israel and God where they find themselves in a culture, in a space, and they adopt that culture's framework for living. Deuteronomy 18, take us back to the Pentateuch, gives us one example. Verse 9 says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Isn't that great? Let's leave that up there for just a moment. It's so amazing to me how even scripture that wasn't written to us can be for us. And I can look at that and I can see that my, in my own life, the Lord has elevated me to platforms or to places or delivered me from situations only to find that there's still more temptation on those higher platforms. There are more struggles on those higher platforms. We often as a people think that just because God set us in a position or set us in a place that we don't have to guard our heart. And we find ourselves becoming complacent with the gospel, complacent with our relationship with him. And surely but slowly, slowly but surely, we begin to adopt the abominations of the culture around us. Well, pastor, that's great and everything, uh, but these are Old Testament examples. The Old Testament saints really needed to get their acts together, some of you are thinking. The New Testament church, though, we've got it all figured out, right? Pastor, you're only talking about Old Testament, so it not, must not be in the New Testament, right? Wrong. I brought some New Testament examples today. Even though we're, our text is in the Old Testament, I want to show you this notion of rebellion and repentance needed continues even in the New Testament. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I love the book of James because he's just so clear. He's so concise. He's so not politically correct. 
You, you never know where you stand with the book of James. The book of James was primarily, and I'm not in New Testament yet, but let me just give you a spoiler alert. It's primarily for practical and ethical purposes. It emphasizes duty rather than doctrine. And James's supreme concern is the reality that Christian living, the way you and I live our lives, validates the claim of the transforming power of Christ. I'll say that again. Our Christian living is a testimony to the fact that God can and will change people. It's not about legalism. It's not about earning your way to heaven. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest any one of us should boast. But our Christian life is a reflection of the glory, the goodness, the faithfulness of our Creator. Every lump of clay points to the potter. Psychology Today published an article by Dr. Jim Taylor called Personal Growth, Your Values, Your Life in 2012. And it details how human beings can be deeply influenced by our surrounding culture, thus changing the way that you and I make decisions. Did you know that you and I make very critical and important decisions that are influenced by the culture that we're surrounded with? And we don't even know that it has impacted the decisions that we've made. We think it's our own heart, our own thoughts, our own logic, our own reasoning, our own capacity to make good decisions. But the reality is the table that we sit at determines the food that we eat. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Word, world, sorry, this is my wife's favorite, one of her favorite verses now. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You and I, as seen in the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament, and understand that there is a cycle that didn't stop in the Old Testament. The human heart craves rebellion. I know you think, I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I'm a peacemaker. Never would I want rebellion. The sin nature craves not just to be away from God, but to be God. And so we find ourselves oftentimes in a cycle of rebellion and this, this deep need to repent, to come back, to turn away from. I love John chapter 7, where the disciples are going up to the Feast of Tabernacles with Jesus. And Jesus, man, he's just the man. He, everything that Jesus did just fit prophetically on a timeline. Like, I can't wait to get to heaven and I just see all the, the pieces of the puzzle overlay. And I'm like, oh my God, that's why you blew your nose then. You know, like everything he did mattered. And in John chapter 7, the disciples were going up to the Feast of Tabernacles and he said, Uh, You you go, your time has come, my time has not yet come. And he leaves them thinking he's not going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he does. He goes up on a Wednesday, midweek, and and he shows up, and then he begins teaching in the temple. Like, so he shows up just not at the right time. And so I'm excited to find out eventually what does that time correlate to? What is the, the right time? But John 7, 7 says something peculiar. He's talking to them just before he sends them away, and he says, the world cannot hate you. 
but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. This is a, a, a good lesson from Jesus on what Christian living looks like. If you're living for Christ, you can expect to be hated. I'll say that again. If you're following Christ, you can expect to be hated. We are called to love the world, yes. But if the world loves you, that should be a problem. A believer gives witness to the fact that sinners are lost and in need of a savior. Listen, the gospel is offensive, church. The gospel, while it is good news to those who have ears to hear, it is highly offensive to those who don't want to submit and surrender to a savior. The gospel isn't a facelift, it's circumcision. Do you know what I mean? And so as the world, we have to understand our goal as a follower of Jesus is not to be liked by the world. It's not to be hated for stupid stuff either. Right? It is the kindness of God that draws people to repentance. Can I get a good amen? Some of you were getting excited thinking I was all, no, simmer down. Simmer down. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. But, but what I want you to understand is at the very core of who we are, there is going to be a clash between light and darkness because they cannot reside together. So church, don't be surprised when you get, you know, yelled at for seemingly no reason. Don't be surprised when relationships feel tense and you can't figure it out. It's not you. It's, it's not you. You that they're against, it's what you carry. You see, there is a spiritual, very real spiritual warfare going on, and there are clashes all around you every day that you don't see simply because you are a carrier of the gospel. You are bearing the light that Jesus came to release on this earth, and Satan doesn't like it. The prophets call people to repentance. I'm out of time. The prophets call the people to repentance, and then God goes silent for 400 years. Hmm. Silent for 400 years. I wonder what that 400 years was like. Because, you know, by this time, lifespan of a human was 120. So there were generations of people that lived when God was silent. If that doesn't make you sad, then you don't depend enough on the voice of God in your life. And I look at Matthew, that we'll be talking about the New Testament next week, but I want to I kind of want to just show you as I close today what God did to break his silent, silence to initiate contact with humanity again. Is that all right? Can I show you that? In Matthew chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. There's this crazy man, cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. And we see that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching 
in Judea and saying, what? What did he say? Repent. So John the Baptist is initiating contact on behalf of God after 400 years of silence. And the first thing scripture says he says is repent. Just because God was silent for 400 years didn't mean that he had moved on from this message of repentance. For this is he who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Then one chapter over Matthew four, we see Jesus. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, what was Jesus' first sermon? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now listen, next week, I'm going to talk to you all about what the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is versus the gospel of grace that was given to, uh, to Paul for Gentiles. That's two different gospels that uh, are combined to make one story of the gospel. And so I want to talk, I'll, I'll break that apart. But know this, that Jesus' message, his message to what does Matthew 16, 16 say? Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And his message was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But pastor, what does repent mean? Because church has made repentance a whole thing that it's not. Repentance doesn't mean to not sin. Repentance doesn't even mean to be sorry for what you've done. I, I know that we grew up thinking, maybe you grew up thinking that repentance was to feel really, really bad and maybe you did something bad and you can't muster up the emotion to feel really guilty for it, therefore you haven't repented. Our emotions have nothing to do with repentance. If you look at the Greek word repent, it's metana eo, metana eo. And it literally means this, to think differently. Repentance is turning our mind from thinking this is all right to knowing this is what God wants from us. Repentance is going from my career is all that I need, turning, thinking differently to Jesus is all that I need. That is, repentance is about shifting our focus Repentance is about changing our mind. Now listen, I, I know you've got good family. We're headed into holidays and you're going to do everything in your power to connect with them. But even that can't be your idol. There are good things in our life and in our world that we have placed on the throne of our heart and they have to get dethroned, church. It's easy for us to see the lust that comes. It's not, it's not easy to dethrone the lust, but it's easy to see when we're sneaking away with the pornography issue. It's easy to see when we're sneaking away with the adultery issue. It's easy to see when we're not paying taxes like we should or whatever it is, we're stealing from our office. Those things are easy to see. But there's a call going out today to repent from the good things of your life because you've placed on hold the God thing in your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you today. I thank you. God, I thank you for who you are and what you're doing. I thank you that thinking differently is simply confessing our sin. We admit that we are a sinner.
we understand that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us so that we could be in relationship with you. So God, help us today to repent, to repent. It's not about feeling sorry. We know that Paul tells us it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's not about the law. It's not about a set of rules. It's about the love of Jesus Christ echoing through our hearts and through our actions and through our beliefs and our frameworks and our worldview. And God, anything that is not of you that we have focused on, we repent, we turn from it, we think differently. So God, over the next seven days, I ask that you would give us the courage to dig into your word. For it's through the reading of your word, the washing of your word that produces a transformed mind. God, I just thank you. I thank you for the opportunity today, while there's still time to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen, amen. Listen, if, if you decided during today's service to put your faith in Jesus Christ, would you do me a favor and text the word NEXT, N-E-X-T, to 512-980-1220. We wanna walk through this process with you. We've got some videos to grow you and help you along your journey. Now, before I let you go today, I just wanna pray a quick prayer of blessing. Is that all right? All right, Father, in Jesus' name, God, I just thank you so much for our time together today. God, I thank you that as we go throughout this building that we understand we're entering the mission field. God, outside of these doors is a city and a people that you adore, that you love. And so, God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see them as you do. Help us to make the most of every opportunity to be a blessing. In Jesus' name I pray. Let the church say amen. amen. God bless you.